I don't think I ever anticipated 8K video. You really start to need the, you know, better codecs in order to deliver good experiences. Part of the reason that it had to be two-way audio video is because we felt like the one-way world was really crowded. There are probably more people doing bi-directional communication on the internet than there were people on the internet in 2002. But if there aren't companies really using these new protocols for these use cases, then they're going to end up not really working. I'm Matt, the organizer of the SF Video Technology Meetup and the Demux Conference. And I'm Steve, creator of VideoJS, the open source video player. And I'm Phil, streaming specialist at Mux in London and organizer of the London Video Technology Meetup. And you're listening to Demuxed, a podcast for and by engineers working with video. Demuxed is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. We're always looking for topics, so if you have any suggestions or just want to tell us how wrong we are, you can find us on Twitter at Demuxed. Hey everyone, welcome back to Demuxed. Uh, it's been a hot minute. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, opened up, I opened up Overcast to show somebody where we were, and we are listed technically as inactive on no. Overcast right now. <laughs> so hopefully this bumps us back into activity. So anyway, thanks everybody for joining us today. We don't have Phil, so as we've done in the past, we replaced him with another person with a delightful accent to give us that culture. You know, mm-hmm. we're international. <laughs> there you go. Not just, not just a bunch of crass Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so those of you that don't know Nick, he's a demux speaker extraordinaire, thought leader in general in the video space. Definitely. Real-time video connoisseur, and I'm I'm kind of feeling a little intimidated today because I have previously given talks on RTMP, and now I'm regretting it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, our guest of honor today is Sarah Allen from Veriscope. She's one of the original creators of RTMP, so this is really exciting. And she's also leading where RTMP is going to go from here, which is always a, a hot topic right now. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. This is really great. It's great to be here. She also, if you were at Demux 2019. She somehow managed to give a historical lesson in a 10-minute slot uh, because she she was one of the late additions to the schedule. Unfortunately, we didn't meet until after like the, the talk selection, but it was too good not to have on the schedule. So she was gracious enough to like squeeze in what in the space we had. So thank you for that. That was awesome. Yeah. And there were so many stories I didn't get to tell. So I'm excited to come back. <laughs> so yeah, I think it'd be a great place to start with just like a history lesson of of RTMP and like. 1999. What was it like before y'all started thinking about RTMP? Like, well, set the stage a little bit. So, in the um, late 90s, the way that you did video on the internet was either QuickTime or RealPlayer, and people would come to a page, and it would be if they if the neither plugin was detected, it would be click here to download RealPlayer, click here to download QuickTime, and Flash was ubiquitous. It was you know something like 98% of browsers on the internet. That was huge. There were hundreds of millions of people on the internet. So that was considered huge in the day. Now, of course, it's most of the people in the world. But in that era, it was a time when regular folks were using the web, whereas five years before that, it was for academics and techies. Mm -hmm. And not even all the techies. So I was still working on the director team, Director was working on its 3D thing. Hmm. And so what was Director? So the first Shockwave was made for Director. And so the Shockwave player was one of the first Netscape plugins. And we worked with Netscape to when they were pre-beta to um, build that Netscape plugin. And it was also one of the first ActiveX controls. And then Macromedia decided that its internet brand would be Shockwave. And they confused everybody by naming all the players Shockwave. So Flash was originally acquired as Future Splash. And so they were required to call their files Shockwave Flash. And so the Swift file was originally Shockwave Flash. And then later they reacronymed it to Small Web File. <laughs> I don't even know that version. <laughs> <laughs> because then like everybody was confused, and so we separated the uh, brands, but it was impossible to disentangle. So I was originally on the director Shockwave team, and 
so we were doing multi-party communication for like more of the gaming market with the Shockwave multi-user server that did UDP for fast communication. And that's when I really learned about like how firewalls are difficult. <laughs> Not that they're actually difficult to configure, but that it's difficult to get the masses of the real world people to configure them. So the other thing, so Jonathan Gay had taken a year off to think about what's next. And he came back talking about this idea of doing two-way audio video in Flash. And he said he wanted to do something more exciting than X10 cameras. Do any of you remember the X10 cameras? Vaguely. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the internet was blanketed with ads for these IP yes. cameras. Yes. Uh-huh. And I looked it up. They were the first pop under ads. So when you opened a web page, <laughs> behind it the ad would pop up. So you would see it when you closed the web page. And so people weren't as quick to dismiss it. And if you were browsing for a while, and this is before browsers had tabs, right? So mm-hmm. you opened all these windows, you'd end up with like seven different X10 ads under <laughs> your windows that you would have to close. So it was a great exposure mechanism. Somebody did a study who was an internet service provider that X10 camera ads now account for 89% of bandwidth used by all broadband users. <laughs> wow. So they, they X10 ads with a the Netflix before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, who was Jonathan Gay? Can we, if, we, if we're gonna, if we're gonna get it on the podcast, I think it would be helpful just like because he was a he was a big deal. Yeah. So Jonathan Gay wrote the first Flash Player and mm. was the primary architect of the Player technology. And and with Robert Satsumi, they, those were the two founders of Future Splash that were acquired by Macromedia. So that team grew to be about five people. And engineers working on um, primarily on the player and a little bit on the authoring tool. And Jonathan Gay was probably more famous at that time for having written Dark Castle and a number of early games when he was like, I think that's how he paid his way through college. Hmm. And so I remember Gary Grossman, who did who added ActionScript, the JavaScript engine to Flash, like he came to say he wanted to work with the person who wrote Dark Castle. <laughs> that's pretty cool. <laughs> So the story I heard was that John came back and pitched the executives on this idea, and he had done some um, early prototyping and believed that we could do two-way audio video in less than 100K of code added to the Flash player. Because the Flash player was then 200K of code. So it was a big Mm -hmm. deal to increase the size by 50%. And at that time, the internet was exploding, right? So this was before the bust at the time that everybody signed off on this. And so they were really looking for places to invest. And so whoever CTO at the time told him that he could pick any five engineers at Macromedia. And afterwards I heard that the same executive was like, oh, I didn't think you were going to pick those five. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were all like, each of us were people who could lead a whole team, mm. yet we got a chance to actually build the original version of the 2A audio video client server. And so that was pretty, pretty fun. 200K, that's like a... Just like your standard JavaScript framework these days, right? Yeah, it's uh, my joke is that engineers these days can't count that small. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, in two thousand, a lot of the population was still on modems at that time. I feel like yeah. So we had yeah. to make stuff work on fourteen four modems. Mm-hmm. And like I remember at that time, I couldn't get DSL at home. I had to get ISDN. Mm-hmm. So that was like as high bandwidth as was available in the mission in the nineties. <laughs> and there, there were only two browsers, right? There was Netscape, which had the plug-in interface, and IE that had ActiveX controls. And you know, we made it work on Mac and Windows for the client side. And you know, I don't know if you all remember the PowerPC mm-hmm. was like one of the requirements. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that happened in the late '90s is that um, they published the Swift file format. So we went into this project with the assumption that we were going to open the protocol. And in fact, while I was still there, we documented the protocol in great detail and the codecs that we licensed, we required them to give us all the information and allow us to make that public. So fast forward 20 years when I came back and actually like looked at the specification, I was like, oh wow, 2012, like what the heck happened? <laughs> this one can go backwards, but the X10 webcam reminded me of, I mean, this is probably right around that time. I remember we bought a 
scanner or something at my house, and it came with a rebate for a webcam. And I was so excited because I was going to get. A, like, this was back in the day when like a webcam meant that you had a camera somewhere that would upload like a JPEG to some FTP server every thirty seconds, and that was like your live mm-hmm. webcam. And I was very excited about setting one of these up. <laughs> so I get this free webcam from this rebate. Very excitedly plug it into my computer. And the quality was so low that you couldn't even make out my face sitting directly <laughs> in front of the monitor. So, needless to say, I did not get Matt Cam, uh, which in retrospect <laughs> is probably a good idea for like 13 year old me to not have <laughs> Matt Cam. So, was anybody else doing anything like that? I mean, so when you know you're you're talking about adding this two way communication into this plugin, like was there competition out there? Like, what did that landscape? Look so, I think like? part of the reason that like I synced up with John Gay and and recently, and he said that part of the reason that it had to be two way audio video is because we felt like the one way world was really crowded, right? With QuickTime, you know, Windows Media Server and um, and Real, and so there was WebEx existed, but everything required a download, and it was all very purpose built. It wasn't a platform. There were some collaboration platforms, but they were more around document sharing and chat, and less around the video were purely video conferencing things, and there weren't. That many of them that weren't dedicated install systems. So when you were working on this for the first time, did Flash even have the ability to playback video then? I don't think so. No. Oh, okay. So it, you, it, people would fake it by having like a series of images. Right. So the mm-hmm. impetus for actually Flash supporting video, which turned out to be this massive thing, was actually two-way communications on day one. It wasn't actually that Flash could play video. Exactly. Huh. That's fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> And I mean, I think I think for a long time I felt like it was this kind of like because during the development of this, like the internet started imploding, and people started for the first time in a while being worried about revenue and stuff, right? And so for a while I felt like it was this sort of close kept secret that half if we do two way, we will get one way to happen, right? Like it's sort of intuitive uh, to me that one right. way of, is half of two way. Like there's a little more features with the buffering stuff, but. We added that in air quotes totally at the end because I felt like partly I didn't talk about it because I thought we would lose the opportunity to do the two way stuff. Right. If they would be like, okay, well, let's focus on one way. And then we wouldn't have been able to release such a groundbreaking platform because it's so much harder to add interactivity leader. Right. So, this entire platform that basically became how the standard way of viewing video on the internet for years. Was kind of like backdoored into a like video chat. Well, yes and no, because the other thing that happened in the late '90s was uh, DVRs. So TiVo had come out in the last year or two, and then there were started to be competitors, and so we wanted to mix live and video on demand. So there could be a live cast that was recording, and you could join late and go backwards in time. And so we're like, well, if the DVRs can do it, we can do it. It's just bits. But that was revolutionary. And it's still, you know, people will say, well, you should have different architectures for live and video on demand. And certainly, if you know that you are never going to do interactivity and never going to do live, it's simpler to do stuff. There's all sorts of shortcuts you can take. But it's so hard to retrofit anything that is timely. And I think that's what we're seeing in the industry is that we've seen a lot of improvements to infrastructure that favor. Things happening reliably yet with high latency, because you know you can give up latency mm-hmm. and get other forms of quality, and certainly make the engineering easier. It's funny watching us. I think we've actually talked about this on the podcast before, but it's been kind of funny watching the video community go full circle for stateful connections for video. Right? It was like RTMP. RTMP is painful because you have to maintain a stateful connection to every viewer. Okay, we'll use streaming over HTTP, and then that was kind of the de facto standard. And then it was just like, but. What if we started delivering things over WebSockets, and what if we started delivering things over WebRTC to try to like reduce that latency again? And now we're like fully back into maintaining a stable connection with every viewer. It's really interesting to watch that like internet mm-hmm. eating itself uh, again. So <laughs> yeah, so we were. It was also like this era where we were going from you know in the early '90s, it was common to write a specification and then. Build your code, and you have development cycles that were a year and a half, and not a lot of iteration, right? To 
the sort of precursors of Agile. There were definitely people doing Agile, even though I didn't know those words then. And there was this whole process at Macromedia about getting the specifications signed off early, and then you would do iteration during the development. But the spec kicked things off. And that was a challenge because the execs wanted to see our progress in terms of had we written these specifications. And we wanted to get it to actually work (laughs) (laughs) before we specified the interfaces, right? Because Mm -hmm. the interfaces would change depending on the characteristics of the platform. And so I made up a new process that I called Glide, which was goal-led iterative development, the small e at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and so for every feature, we had a goal. And after you met that goal with a prototype, then you wrote the specification. Mm. And so that way they could see progress while the engineers could actually build stuff that worked. Mm-hmm. And like, those are the kinds of hacks that we had to do to get this thing to happen in a different way because it was hard to make it work you know, into a video. It's kind of one of those amazingly obvious in retrospect things that you should figure out how to make it work before you write down how it works. You would think so. <laughs> <laughs> you basically had to like invent lean startup <laughs> in order to get this done. A lot of the stuff that was happening in the you know, late 90s on the web is sort of analogous to what's happened in the last five years with web apps where building it is not the hard part, like figuring out what to build is the hard part. There were, like, there were a lot of applications where you just were like, well, let's decide what we're doing and then the engineering is clear. Mm. But this was not one of them. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, we've, we've talked about kind of what the landscape looked for internally here, but like, were other people doing this? Like when you're when you're talking about all of these development cycles and getting things out the door like were you racing against anybody else like was there a video race or did you know about it or like what would that look like we didn't know about anybody who was working on anything similar and then um were I was surprised like sort of 6 months into it when we were like really struggling to get the low latency video and like you know and achieve with the codecs you know like 10 or 12 frames per second were some of our early codecs that I was like eh that's barely video then I walk in one morning, and on the interwebs is a, like a press release from Yahoo that Yahoo Messenger 5.0 has video in Yahoo Messenger. And I'm like, oh, they totally scooped us. <laughs> and I download it, and it turns out that the video is the thumbnail of the avatar. So it's like 64 <laughs> by 64 or 32 by 32 pixels, and it's one frame per second. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't know we could call it video at one frame per second. I, we could have totally released something. Well, I'm glad we waited to make it great. Right. But and they didn't totally scoop us because that didn't really catch on. Do you know which uh, do you know which codec they were using or which which codec you guys were using with some of these early? Well, we used um I actually did the codec negotiations with Isaac Babs and we Who's Isaac Babs. Oh, Isaac Babs was a biz dev guy at Macromedia, and mm. so he actually. So people don't realize that even though the web had been around for five years, not many things were on the web, right? Mm. So how do you find oh, a right. company that makes codecs? <laughs> like you can't do a web search. <laughs> right. You have to talk to people, mm-hmm. and you know, figure out who makes codecs. So Isaac did that. You know, like he went and found the different codec manufacturers. And you know, he found Nelly Moser, who this awesome mm-hmm. group of audio engineers who made a codec for us. Did he look them up in like yellow pages or something? How does that work? Uh, I think <laughs> before the internet, you start to talk to people who have codec needs, and they introduce you to other people who do codecs. And so, most of the codecs we look at were just the codec was bigger than hundred k of code compressed, mm-hmm. right? And the audio codecs were crazy large. Like, you know, like, oh, this one's, you know, 1.2 megabytes. And like, okay, next. Mm-hmm. And so the way that we got the audio codec, well, we already had MP3 decompression in Flash so that you could play music. So it did, you know, there, there was like shockwave audio that, that implemented MP3 that added it to all the shockwaves in like 97, I think. So we decided to do a voice only codec, which could get it really, really small. And so they made a codec specifically for us that balanced like making voice good with code size, hmm. and they were great to work with. Uh, although the reason I'm 
I have a clear memory of this specification is because we had to write down the codec format, which was very hard, right? Like, it, you know, we ended up writing something down, but it was like very, you know, well, in theory, somebody could replicate that. <laughs> <laughs> but there was discussions at that point of open sourcing the Flash Player, right? Like, it was like mm. this whole openness win thing that was uh, at one point seemed to be where things were going. And on the video side, we really wanted to use H.264, which is out then, but they hadn't hmm. figured out the licensing terms. This and is 2000? This was by 2001. Yeah, okay. Because the first codec that was in Flash was Spark, which was... It was 263, yeah. Yeah, okay. So we evaluated 264. Oh, okay. And they hadn't figured out the licensing terms, but we were going to put the codecs in the player, and we couldn't afford to pay per Flash player. Oof, yeah, that makes sense. And so if we had put it in the player, Macromedia would have had to pay for every download. (laughs) So we went with H.263, and I've read people criticizing it being non-standard, and there were two big differences. One is most people don't know that H.263 and family, you know, similar family of codecs were written for when you had dedicated systems, right? And you had video monitors that were specific sizes. And so the 263 specification says you must support only these widths and heights of video. Hmm. So we were like, well, can we put other numbers in there? Okay, no problem. That's non-standard. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know, and like I remember John saying, well, Maybe people will want to make portrait video. Maybe it's not shouldn't all be three by four because we'll be doing video conferencing. And people are like, oh, "You think really?" And now the iPhone lets you do that. <laughs> we, um, we still don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> still wrong. Well, if you're compositing it with something, it could be great. So, and then the other thing that was non-standard about the codec is that they had constant bandwidth, which meant the quality changed mm-hmm. over time. And when you're Doing it over the internet, it actually, especially if you want to be downloading multimedia assets too, like there's no reason to like artificially have it constant. So we we made another option for constant quality. Otherwise, you had this like sort of throbbing visual effect. Hmm. It's amazing how things change and yet how they stay exactly the same. Now we're in 2020 and we're still angsting over what video codecs we can actually use on the web and who's paying the H.264 license <laughs> and how to actually get good video delivered without that quality pulsating on keyframes. It's like the more things change, the more everything stays the same. Well, I think that we're we're still chasing the, you know, like CPUs have gotten so fast. We have so much memory. If then we want to just gobble it up with like JavaScript, bigger, <laughs> more JavaScript, bigger but screens. It's kind of amazing. You, you you mentioned earlier trying to get it right, and I think one of the the things that attests to that is we're still using RTMP today. It's still mm-hmm. still a relevant protocol for some of the biggest sites on the modern internet. Mm-hmm. I remember Chris Hawk was a PM at Macromedia um, at Adobe now. Uh, sorry, I won't make that slip sometimes. So we worked together at Macromedia <laughs> back in the day. He um, was uh, one of the original PMs who launched the product and stayed for a few years and then left and came back. And so he came up with this idea of spinning out the technology to Veriscope. And when he first talked to me about it, I was like, well, are you kidding me? Um, because I just assumed it was a dying technology that nobody was using anymore and I don't want to take over this dead thing. Mm-hmm. And then I started looking into it and I was like, wow, like YouTube, Twitch, Facebook, like Mox, mm-hmm. all these companies using it for ingest. And then there's all these like different applications that are like off the web. Like we think about the desktop web and the mobile web being everything, but it's also being used in apps, you know, for the, some of the things that it was made for. But the majority use cases are like, oh yeah, that's what I use for ingest. And then then started really learning about there's, you know, the technology is applicable to a whole bunch of different things today because it's you know like it's just a really nice um, scalable server that it was built to run on a small footprint so you could run it on a Raspberry Pi today hmm. and most of the stuff that where people are building for the desktop and mobile web is too heavyweight to put on little devices. Mr. Don't we have a, a, an eight street cam that's on a, on a Raspberry Pi that's streaming? We we do. I'm not sure that's on the public internet, though. I'm not sure. <laughs> not sure anyone wants to look at Eighth Street, San Francisco. Um, but I think that's a, re- a really interesting point. Like modern, te- if we we put air quotes around like modern peer-to-peer video technologies like WebRTC, only just now 
are people actually trying to build embeddable libraries. There's there's a, a recent C implementation of WebRTC that came out of a, a project called Pion that was a Go implementation of WebRTC. But just having multiple working implementations of WebRTC that weren't just the Google Lib WebRTC has taken years and years. And even now, they're not fully production ready. If you wanted to do WebRTC from an embedded device, it is really complicated to, to get that technology working. Whereas with the RTMP spec and you know a couple weekends, you can get something working. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's really fascinating is like how many different libraries there are and different, you know, like you're like, oh, if you want to have like an there's an Nginx plugin, and there's like this, you know, if you want to have a standalone thing, here's a open source CRTMP server, and there's like libRTMP, and there's like RTMP implementation in multiple ones in most languages. Red five and Java. Exactly, and I think bigger than that is the tooling. Like when I was like starting to look at it again, and you know, didn't recall all the details of the protocol, <laughs> I can just use Wireshark. And it's got it's got built-in RTMP support, so that like having that ecosystem of tools is like very awesome. So correct me if I'm wrong here. So when we're talking about like sitting down with with these specs and trying to implement these things a couple weekends with RTMP, a constant thing that I've heard is like RTMP was reverse engineered to be an open spec, or it wasn't like officially an open spec. It's just a bunch of people reverse engineered the protocol. And that's one of the reasons why it became kind of painful to work with for so long is because there's all these different implementations, because people would just kind of like without the spec, they would just kind of shove things in. Y'all correct me if I'm wrong, but that I feel like that's something I've heard. Like, is that a thing? And is like where is that today? That's a great question. And many of the implementations, the most widely used ones, were released before there was a specification. So they could only reverse engineer it. And then in 2012, Adobe released a specification. And I've been looking at you know, the future of the direction of this protocol. And so we, we now have a microsite, rtmp.veriscope.com, where you can see the Adobe specification we've transformed into HTML backed by Markdown. And so you could go there in GitHub and make corrections and clarifications. And I'm in a phase now where we're first making some clarifications to the specification. And I've got a little side project where I'm trying to do like a, it's not really a clean room implementation because like I know the specification <laughs> and I've seen a lot of the code that implements it, but I'm trying to write code just using the spec and it's really hard. And what I found is all the information is in there. And so far I haven't found something that is clearly wrong yet you have to look at four or five different sections and put them together and try to understand what these all are. And you know, often this they'll say, oh, the ID, blah, blah, blah. And there's like chunk IDs and stream IDs and command IDs. And so it was, I mean, it was probably just, I would guess, given to an engineer to write, and they didn't have the cycles to have a detailed review process. So I have great empathy for whoever needed to write this spec. It was like somebody like a long time after. The you know original team, and it wasn't somebody who was on the original team who was then tasked with writing the specification. But I'm excited to like actually put together some more easy to follow <laughs> <laughs> details. And RTMPS was never specified, so there are different implementations of RTMPS out there, which are two. Just it's really straightforward. There's the HTTPS layer, which works through all the firewalls, right? And then there's just over a secure socket. So it's, quote, simple, but it's also hard if you don't know that. Like, oh, there's two variants, and do I have software that speaks both? So just writing that stuff down, I think, will be a big service <laughs> to the community. And yeah, step one. <laughs> I think that part of the thing that was missing from the spec, and what I, I've been following on a little bit with the work you've been doing on the spec, one of the things that's really nice is just getting some of the clarifications. Like, do this. Don't do this. When I was working at Twitch, one of the the things we we kept running into was we'd read the spec, we'd kind of understand the protocol, and you know if you're a protocol nerd, there's things like the chunk stream, which then provides data for a higher level notion of stream. So there's this lower level and higher level. Things can be interleaved so that you can send a video frame over multiple packets interleaved with audio. 
But then you run into questions like, can I get a message from a stream on a new chunk stream ID? And you make decisions there because that's a little bit unspecified. And the moment you make a decision there, you're going to find an encoder that made the different decision. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to, exactly. you're, so people have ended up having to write RTMP servers that are extremely, extremely forgiving for what's actually out in the wild. But then one of the actual things that, that caused a lot of, of issues, in my view, is there were kind of two camps working on RTMP. There was the camp that wanted to build in interoperability, and actually build RTMP-powered apps and understand the spec and work with it in an open-source manner. And then there were stream pirates. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I think the difficulty that came around working with RTMP was RTMP-E, that notion that there's an encrypted stream that has some DRM built in, that was extremely sensitive at Adobe. And I think that, that polluted the conversation a lot because half the people using RTMP just wanted to steal content. I think that's a good point. Like I think a big part of it is the clarification of intent, right? So if you know it's twenty twenty hindsight, right? Create empathy with people who were in the trenches making these decisions because it's easy to say things in retrospect. But I think that, and the, you know, like what what I'm trying to do now is really that that like, well, let's communicate what Adobe slash Veriscope wants, right? The DRM stuff is secret and private, and you have to get it from Adobe and whatnot. But I think that got muddied where it wasn't clear to the community what, you know, there was some threatened litigation and stuff like that, which then I think made a lot of people just kind of want to back off. When actually the majority of RTMP was not in contention, right? It had been documented and so forth. And so just teasing that apart. For the community, and then I think you know, as people are more and more security-minded, making sure that we have the security laid out and um, people can implement that without fear of reprisal, right? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think you know, people will always want DRM solutions, and those can be layered on top of a, you know an open protocol. And I think that that's what you know kind of needs to be clarified. And I think it would have served the community if that had been done earlier. But here we go. Yeah, that's that's something that. Um... Facebook has recently switched over to to enforcing RTMPS only, or they're they're moving in that direction for new streams. And it really is that that difference between as an individual broadcasting some content, you want to make sure that you know the person on your Wi-Fi or the NSA can't intercept your stream and watch it. And that's a completely different requirement from DRM, where you are sending the same video to multiple viewers and you want to have some kind of encryption mechanism that prevents them from just like sharing that content and, and capturing that content. So yeah, I'm very excited to get the clarifications coming from that that sort of Twitch background having worked on RTMP ingest at Zencoder now Mux. Yeah, it's going to be it's very exciting to actually have a spec that's getting annotated, have some of these details fleshed out and to know exactly how we should be building that security into our product. Yeah, and I think the other aspect that I think will become important is who is broadcasting, right? So the other reason, it's not just that somebody can intercept and see your private feed, although that can be an issue if you're doing it for a private group, but somebody could pretend to be you. Mm. And, you know, like we have a lot of confidence that I think is false confidence that when we see somebody in live video, that they are who they are. But actually, like I, you know, I did After Effects early in my career. Like I well know <laughs> that we can fake these things, right? We can fake what we look like, and so I think as time goes on, people will be wanting to have end-to-end security so that the video, they, you know, the video originated with me if it's coming from my stream. It's really like deep fakes is an increasing like it was. It was a problem before. I think people like are more scared about it now because of the. Publicity that deepfakes have gotten recently, but that's a that's a really good point. Yeah, I think that the more that I mean, kind of like with HTBS, like I, I've been following, HTBS did not become widely adopted because anybody like regulated it or did some kind of top down. Everyone must use HTBS. A lot of the engineers have conspired with each other <laughs> to make it more and more obvious to consumers. That if they're not using HTTPS, it's a bad thing, right? First was just like, okay, let's put up icons and you know, like let's spread awareness about what's safe and what's not. And then like, okay, let's make it like you have to click a few things before you get through to the non-HPS website. 
And I think that style of introducing security by first introducing the secure features as an option and then gradually making it seem more difficult and scary to do the non-secure things before you take it away. I think that's a way that we can introduce these concepts. And if we get people creating things that have some kind of authenticity stamp, then I think it's the only way that I think we can really solve the like fake news, deep fake thing, hmm. because by actually having some record of the originator of this videos and how it's been mashed up in between. Slightly different topic. I'm interested to know where where you feel like the topic of adaptive streaming is going in relation to RTMP. Like when I'm talking to people about uh, WebRTC specifically, like there's a lot of questions around how WebRTC does adaptive streaming because it does actually aggressively downgrade the quality in order to maintain that real timeness of the stream. Most people using WebRTC, I rarely see it go above like 540p video because it's again trying to keep that you know real timeness. And then there's a detail of with WebRTC, when it is doing adaptive streaming, it's usually creating all of the different versions on the client as opposed to doing it on the server. And so, like, when I'm talking to people about WebRTC versus using RTMP, like, some of the things that come up are, you know, RTMP is everywhere and it, it like, actually more likely will maintain the quality that you're trying to go to because it doesn't have all these column protections against um, dropping from real time. Just wondering your your opinion on where that technology is at, where it's going with RTMP, that type of. Yeah, so like, and just to as to sort of context set at the beginning, we well, we only had one codec, mm-hmm. and that made things easier and more complicated, right? Because it was a limited set of tools, but we would drop frames, right, and mm-hmm. prioritize audio because it mm-hmm. turns out that if you aren't seeing everything, then it's like less critical than if you hear, if you like, if voice gets behind or you like, you miss something and you get a pop, like. It's really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And people are much more forgiving of something visually missing data. Mm-hmm. And what I believe is true is, but it would be interesting if there's been any studies in this area, that when it comes to video conferencing, the quality of the video is probably more important than seeing every little detail of movement. So the other thing that's interesting about video conferencing and compression is that most people keep their heads still and there's very little motion. Hmm. So you can actually get the streams to be very small you know, if it's, it's set up well and you have that type of uh, video conferencing. Of course, movies are a different thing. Mm-hmm. Back to your question, in terms of where things are going, I think that um, if your target is desktop video conferencing, compressing multiple streams on the client is absolutely the right choice, right? Because you have enormous compute power on the client. You have no transcoding, right? Because Transcoding increases latency. It has mm-hmm. to. And so if you can match all the clients with the same codec and the same, you know, like and something that's generated by one of the clients, like you're going to have the best latency. Mm. So that's great. It's challenging because then sometimes the clients aren't as high powered and you have to like make trade-offs there. Like, oh, I want to move to this new codec that is great bandwidth, but it's hard to generate multiple streams on multiple clients. So mm-hmm. Having a solution where you can, um, you know, like make a good guess, right? That one of the clients produces, and then have a transcode on the server, makes a lot of sense. When you can support it, supporting multiple codecs for multiple bit rates from the um, clients, um, it's going to give you like the best quality. And so I think the other thing that's interesting about WebRTC, and I haven't dove into to see what codec, like how exactly it's implemented these days, mm-hmm. but from a specification perspective, it allows um, lossy transport, right, for the video and audio streams. And so you could potentially take great advantage of that from a codec if the codec is built to support lossiness. Practically, that's very hard to achieve mm-hmm. because you, you know, there's certain things you need to have. <laughs> and knowing what's necessary and not necessary is like super challenging, right? That's why we're still inventing codecs <laughs> in this millennium. But I think that like one of the areas that I'm really excited at looking at is the quick protocol because mm. it allows for lossy and lossless streams over the same connection. Mm. And so quick is what is the foundation of HTTP3. And so that's going through a standards process because there was an original quick and now this has been modified and actually so that it will support all of HTTP and then it will become the HTTP3 protocol. Hmm. And so I think that that has the promise of one, 
the characteristics of the protocol are something that would actually work well for audio and video streaming. And I think that I'm really excited to like look at layering RTMP on top of Quick. And I'm also looking at, frankly, layering RTMP on top of WebRTC. Like hmm. that could work in terms of like having the semantics of RTMP and just the transport of WebRTC could work well. Hmm. But maybe we can leapfrog it and get maybe if Quick is out early enough, that might be more suitable hmm. because it's really built for two-way streaming. I think there's also a question there about new codecs, codecs that are built for, for example, lossiness or even better compression. One of the challenges, or perhaps one of the features of RTMP, has been that static list of codecs, right? There's a set list of things you might encounter in an RTMP stream, and there's absolutely no way to add in a new codec to that list. Is that something you're thinking about changing as part of this spec? That's a great question. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it was by design to have very few set of codecs because that makes it simple to implement, and it also we were worried about the code size of the client. So this, I think, has been a success in creating the interoperability. Yet some of the codecs are awesome. I don't think I ever anticipated. 8K video. <laughs> when we did After Effects in 1990, 4K was film quality. And mm. so I thought 4K was the max that we would ever do for video. Mm. And it turns out, well, <laughs> we can do more and understand how humans see video. And, and then VR is coming up, which is even fatter than that, mm -hmm. right? And so you really start to need the you know, better codecs in order to deliver good experiences. So definitely looking at expanding that list. And I've had some healthy debate and would love to talk to anybody about whether we should have an escape hatch for somebody to specify their own codec, which is a well-trodden debate. But I think that it would be healthy to have that again because as soon as you allow anybody to specify anything, then that affects the interoperability negatively. But there will be a time, you know, 10 years from now, there'll be... Codex where you're, I can't believe we're using such old yucky codecs. <laughs> um, our new like best thing is gonna not be awesome ten years from now or maybe even sooner. So uh, we started a RTMP channel on the Video Dev Slack, and so oh, nice. um, would welcome people who wanna come and and bike shed about protocol decisions. <laughs> what I'm searching for is really great use cases, right? I want to always make decisions with and this is why and this is how it's going to not just help a particular vendor but really be the right thing for the community. And I think that the exciting thing about being situated with Veriscope which has gotten the assets from Adobe is that like I have, you know, the authority to write this new specification. And uh, my goal is to just do some short-term things first that will address pain points in the community, mm -hmm. um, the codecs. And um, we've heard from people running big services that having a redirect in the middle of a stream, which clients would respond to. Because when you first connect, it can say go somewhere else. But then if you're in the middle of live streaming and you need to drain a server, you know, like there is a, you know. Hmm. That would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> So that I think is really straightforward to add. It's just a matter of you know, sort of getting figuring out a, the right sort of syntax for it and where to put it in the communication. So relatively small things I think could fit into like having like a something kind of like a one dot one spec that would be where I think all the server people who run services are would embrace being backwards compatible. But then if a client were to advertise that it supports one one, then the server could take advantage of. One one features, and I think Veriscope's well positioned because I think that we're the only company that has both client and server technologies. Because we have the RTMP SDK too. I mean, I think there might be some companies that have, but I don't know if they have client SDKs. But in any case, we have a lot of people who use the client SDK, and so we have a like, kind of footprint there. And um, and then we have a server that we sell, which doesn't compete with the big services, right? So some people want to buy a server. And that's a different thing. So right. um, I think it's neat to be situated at Veriscope and helping. Take this forward from a position where we're not competing with most of the people who need the spec changes. We've already started dabbling in this about where things are going, but is there anything else in your mind? Like, what else is you know we're, we're talking a little bit right now about like one dot one, but what do you see in one dot or two dot Like, if you if you were going to cut a two dot in the next five years, like, what do you think that looks like? Well. To wrap up the one dot one thing, the other thing that is sort of it's actually independent of. Any protocol 
release, which is formalizing how data is sent around. Because there are you know, closed caption specifications, there are ad insertion specifications, but how those get put into streams and on the wire is, there's a, you know, could be a diff- bunch of different ways. And so it mm-hmm. turns out that there's a bunch of arbitrarily different things across the interwebs for common data interoperability things. So I think having those specified, specifying how multi-track audio works, which is a capability of the protocol, but somehow like a limitation of certain parts of the ecosystem that I'm still trying to figure out. So I think those are just kind of addressing the near-term pain points. And then in the future, I'm super excited to see whether Quick will give us the transport that we need. And if we can manage to really like dive into it before they like sort of ink the protocol. It's not just the protocol, it's the implementation. So what I've seen historically is that like some standard comes out and then it doesn't really matter what the standard says because the implementations don't work. Right, like that happened with CSS initially. Right, like it was just super hard to use CSS until like five years after the standard came out because, you know, there were browsers that just didn't fully implement the spec. And so, if we can kind of like get into it before the standard gets rolled out completely, then I think there's a chance it could work really well, because bidirectional streaming is not really. I mean, it's an incredibly common use case. But if you are somebody who's used to thinking about how I download documents and display HTML pages, it's an edge case, mm-hmm. right? And there are probably more people doing bidirectional communication on the internet than there were people on the internet in you know 2002. <laughs> right. But if there aren't companies really using these new protocols for these use cases, then they're going to end up not really working. Like I remember in the, I was an executive that I won't name in the 90s at Macromedia who said, why do we have to be involved with standards? We weren't involved in the CD-ROM standards when we did, you know, in interactive multimedia. And that we that worked out fine. And it sort of felt wrong to me. And like I thought about it and I was like, yeah, that's why CD-ROMs don't work well for interactivity. <laughs> like we, <laughs> we always had to do this like crazy amount of like let's keep stuff in memory because the seeks were really slow, and like that's what happens is that like by default what happens for video is VCR controls, and the mm-hmm. level of interactivity that anybody has is VCR controls, mm-hmm. and so if you want to have better than that. <laughs> Like, you know, we have to actually exercise the protocol. So hmm. I would like to see, you know, a kind of platform on the web that's based on open protocols that allows for the type of interactivity that Doug Engelbart was doing in the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> and so something that would power some of these these interactions, relatively newer interactions, like, you know, people chatting alongside uh, Twitch stream or HQ trivia and things like that. Is that kind of what we were talking about with this interactivity between video streams and so that is one kind of interactivity. That's not really what I was talking about. Okay. I was talking about like the ability to actually do like linking across videos, say. Hmm. Like so imagine that um, this podcast was a video and I had slides of the timeline of RTMP and somebody's watching this and they could click on that timeline and then go to, you know, a 30-minute video about the history of the internet at that time, right? You know, this is what we envisioned in the early 90s, right? Interactive television was going to be like. Mm-hmm. And it's just never been a thing for reasons. But I guess that could be a whole other podcast. Why did ITV not happen? But I think that now we have the platform for ITV, right? That people were trying to create with dedicated hardware and software in the early 90s. And now it's the internet. And we have these notions of linking and having additional information to augment our stuff on the web in text and graphics, right? Mm-hmm. That does not happen in video. And there are some nice implementations of it. I mean, I have to say, the, um, the X-ray stuff that Amazon mm-hmm. Prime does, right? <laughs> yeah. There's some sweet stuff that is being done, but it is incredibly fancy engineering. Mm. And I think in the future, it should be as easy as you know marking up and you know, HTML page to do many of those things in video. Hmm. And people have been trying to do this for 
since before I was born. <laughs> I think at the very least, building in that kind of flexibility into new protocols and like getting in, like you're saying, getting involved with Quick. Put somebody in the room who's saying, what about the data going the other way? How do we keep that fast? At the very least, even if it's not one specific product that wins, it opens up an ecosystem where people can actually imagine whole new things and then have the tools to go build them, not be held back by, oh, this protocol is actually only good for one-way data, or, oh, you can't really mix different media types over these connections. And yeah, that's an interesting uh, sort of notion there of being in the room so that those things at least become possibilities. Cool. I think one last request is please can we have Opus, maybe AV1? <laughs> H265 can come too, I guess. Parting words from Nick. <laughs> Duly noted. <laughs> Wasn't a yes. I won't pre-announce the, the details of our not yet fully designed protocol. Well, I will try and get involved in that room. Excellent. <laughs> And one of those rooms that Sarah mentioned was RTMP on Video Dev. If you're not familiar, that's a Slack organization full of smart people that work with video every day. So that's video-dev.org. There's also a link on demux.com. I think it's in the footer and header. And I think if you just go there and search dev, you'll find it. On that note, the other big news, we officially, as of this morning, have signed the contract with the venue for 2020. Uh, in San Francisco, so that's going to be October 7th and 8th at the SVN West in San Francisco, so right off the BART lines, so we're not we're not in deep dog patch. Ooh, fancy new digs. Fancy new digs. Is, yeah, it's it's pretty sweet. I'm really excited about it, not going to lie. But yeah, it's October 7th and 8th, book it on your calendars. I'm actually, this is the first time I'm officially publicly announcing it, <laughs> but by the time this is actually published, it'll probably already be out there in the wild, so... You retroactively heard it here first. <laughs> um, we heard it here. First. Yeah, yeah, y'all, yeah, y'all heard it here first. So, anyway, thank you so much again, Sarah. It's it's, it's an honor mm-hmm. to get to chat with you about this today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. That's all we have for today. But as always, we'd love to hear what you thought, even if you disagree. So please reach out on Twitter at Demuxed. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 